Hey, it's Jamie West on the podcast this week for Scott Thompson. He's out playing around. What can he say? It's summertime. Coming up on the podcast, we're going to tell you some good news about rope rescues in the city, which have been continually dropping since they put up those barriers and signs at all those beautiful places like Albion Falls. Kara Bunn will join us. She's the manager of parks and cemeteries for the city of Hamilton. Also on the podcast, we'll talk with Duff Conacher. He's the co-founder of Democracy Watch. Is government ethics going to be a major concern for you come the October federal election. A lot of people think ethics is all it's about. We'll talk to Duff on the uh, podcast. And Ann Douglas will be here. She's a parenting expert and author of the Mother of All Baby Book series. Uh, We're going to talk about mom guilt. Apparently, there's a lot of young mothers out there that feel guilty about whether they're good enough as mothers. Why? I don't know. Stick around. The podcast is right here. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. There's good news um, in Hamilton, and that is that uh, we're not fishing as many people out from the bottoms of places like the Devil's Punch Bowl and Albion Falls uh, as we were a while ago. It seems as though uh, the warnings are working and uh, the barriers are working and... Boy, oh boy, I guess, should we be surprised about that? Well, there's only one person to turn to to ask the question, and that's Kara Bunn, who's the manager of parks and cemeteries in the city of Hamilton. And Kara, sometimes people go to a park and they end up in a cemetery just by their own stupidity. (laughs) Unfortunately, yes. I had to take advantage of that that tie-in. Yeah, so, and, and I know you guys take this very seriously, and it was a serious problem. And, and continues to be a problem, but it was a very serious problem uh, a couple of years ago when, for whatever reason, there was an increase, I suppose, in interest in climbing around places like Albion Falls and Webster's and maybe the Punch Bowl and other places, and people just weren't using their heads, and they were doing stupid things, right? Yeah, we had a lot of rope rescues, and we had some incidents where people were getting injured, so we had to take action. And what is the what do you think the reason for that is primarily? Because I know investigations happen around uh, things when, when 18 or 19 EMS people have to be called out to, you know, rescue somebody or recover somebody's body. Um, there's a lot of questions that are asked. Um, you know, where did it happen? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And I wonder, has it got a lot? Has it got a lot to do with the with the need for people to grab a selfie? Like, is that a big? Is that the big issue here? It seems to have been a, an issue. For, uh, a lot of people are trying to get into a more dangerous area to get a better view or to be um, in the waterfall to grab that selfie so that they can get the bigger, better selfie than the next person. So it has been a, a concern for us, and and uh, we've been trying to create areas where people can go and get a selfie still, but it's safe. Right. So like everything, I blame it completely on social media. It's another sign and symptom that social media is to blame for everything uh, in our in our world, he says with <laughs> tongue in cheek. Um, so tell me about what has actually happened, what the city has done in some of these areas. For those of us that haven't uh, been back to visit Uh, maybe in the last little while since these safety measures were put in place. Give us an idea of uh, what we're talking about here. Well, what we started doing back in 2017 is that we put up um, some fencing to keep people out of areas that were deemed um, unsafe. 
because there were um, unofficial trails being created and um, areas that were unstable. We also put up a lot of signage to tell people to stay on the trails, don't climb the rock, um, you know, telling them where would be a safe place to view the waterfalls. We also created some maps and put those signages out to show them where the viewing platforms were. How much? Any additional? Sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, how much of this is motivated by a genuine desire to keep people safe and, and politics and all of that? And how much of it had to do with uh, lawyers with the city of Hamilton pulling staff aside and saying, look, you're going to get sued to death here if you don't start doing something and spending some money to create some safety um, barriers? It really was about keeping people safe. Um, we had had some lawsuits in the in the past that had happened, and we thought that we could put some signage and stuff in place. But when we realized that signage wasn't enough because people kept flocking to the waterfalls, we decided that to keep everybody safe, we needed to make sure, even you know, people who were trying to be safe, um, we needed to make sure that we uh, were making um, people make the correct decision about where to view the platform like be on the platform, look at the falls, not from an outcrop that might be um, dangerous. Right. I, I can remember um, hiking around Webster's, uh, this has got, got to be 10 years ago, uh, and thinking, wow, um, one wrong step along here with this crowd of people and kids kind of unattended to, and somebody's going to get hurt or killed. Like it just, it, it, there was a feeling of uneasiness walking along there and you know and I made sure I had my kids by the hand kind of thing and kept back a bit but there were lots of people who weren't doing that and I always thought wow um, you know are you able to in a place like that are you able to create a barrier all the way around because there's there's a lot of terrain there and there's a lot there's you know a lot of paths are you able to to do that well, we haven't been able to do it at the lower level because right. um, down there it is actually a floodplain. So if we put fencing in, that could potentially cause uh, more damages. So what we've done in addition to the fence and signs is we've had bylaw enforcement teams out there educating people and where necessary handing out tickets and um, making sure that people stay in the authorized area. Right. And have you been out and as a manager and kind of observed uh, those interactions uh, with with people and kind of sat back and and kind of watched what was happening or or you know worked with um, uh, bylaw teams who are out there all the time to observe uh, how people are reacting to all of these new developments and and get a sort of get a handle for yourself on on what that looks like and and what do you see when you're out there uh, absolutely. I mean, in the early days, we saw people who were climbing fences and handing babies over the fence <laughs> and showing up wow. in wedding dresses and high heels. And now with the bylaw staff there, they've been able to stop a lot of that from happening before anyone even gets over the fence. So they've been fantastic in doing a lot of education and telling people how to stay safe uh, before they even get into a dangerous area. Right. And, you know, there'll be people listening who will say, oh, okay, bylaws out there, you know, handing out tickets left, right, and center. But that's not really what you're doing, is it? Your, your, your primary, primary objective, as you said, is to, is to dial people in. Absolutely. I mean, their, their first line is to uh, warn people um, and educate them. Only if necessary, they lay a charge when potentially somebody's not following instruction or they're not listening to the directions given. Kara, with all of the nice um, parks that we have, the green spaces, the, the, the cliffs and the waterfalls and all of that, which people are really, people that have lived in Hamilton for generations are only now 
sometimes catching on that this stuff is here and always has been here. It's certainly something that's attracting people from outside the area. And it's certainly something that people who are new to our area gravitate towards in great numbers. Are there spots in, in the city that, under that description uh, that are more popular than others? Is Albion Falls more popular than Webster's Falls? What do we know about the numbers of people that visit these places, maybe particularly in the summertime when people are off on holidays, uh, on a daily basis or weekly basis? What do we know about that? What we've seen is that a lot of the waterfalls that are most popular are the ones that are very accessible or are larger and uh, a greater spectacle. Um, so the Webster's Falls and, and the Albion Falls are two really big ones. We have some smaller ones that are a little bit off the beaten track that don't get as many visitors, but definitely we still, because of all the social media and the websites that are out there directing people where to go, um, all of our waterfalls have become more popular. So I imagine from a, you know, from a tourism uh, standpoint as well, your, your colleagues uh, in the city of Hamilton, if, if you can make a park safer... Um, and and have everybody be able to enjoy it uh, more safely, then the, the word probably spreads uh, even more across the city that you got to see this place. It's great, and that's really good for, for the city in general, right? It is, absolutely. It's fantastic for the city, and, uh, you know, some of the things we're looking at for Albion Falls is to propose a blue, uh, new uh, platform that's lower to the base of the falls where people can still come and, and get that ultimate selfie in front of the base of the falls. So that's something that's a future project, but definitely we want to work with tourism and, and bring people in so that they can see our waterfall. Excellent. Kara Bunn, uh, manager of uh, Parks and Cemeteries, uh, the city of Hamilton. I think I'll stick to the parks part for a while before I get into the cemetery stuff. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for, uh, for being with us here uh, this afternoon. Appreciate the insight. Thanks very much, Jamie. Have a great day. Bye-bye. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. There's uh, Carabun. And, yeah, enjoy those uh, waterfalls. It's another thing about our city that a lot of people don't know when they're hearing those Hamilton jokes that still go around <laughs> outside of the city limits. Uh, this is a beautiful place with lots of green space, and it's not hard to find. And apparently now it's... Um, it's getting safer, so that's good. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I've got real concerns, as I'm sure you do too, about ethics in government. Now, you know, traditionally, we've always had concerns <clears throat> about ethics in government and around uh, politicians and politics. Uh, but apparently, uh, this is going to be a major concern come October for the federal election. And uh, joining us on the line to talk about it is a guy that's paid a lot of attention to governments over the years, Duff Conagher, who is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, and he's an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, good to have you here. My pleasure. I, I can hear, I, it's, is that one of your youth in the background? Where are you, at the beach today? No, not today. Okay. Yes. <laughs> You're here in the background. E excellent. Well, maybe we should put that young person on on because... In a lot of cases, the young people are have it right, and us middle agers don't have it have it right. Um, why all of a sudden is ethics being raised as such a, an actual issue in the forthcoming? I can't remember in my lifetime ethics being raised as a potential election issue. Well, it it actually uh, is there as an underlying issue always, and um, it's uh, something that 
a lot of the parties don't pay attention to because when you ask people, they say my top concerns are job and roof over my head and, you know, concerns about family in terms of community and healthcare and environment. But very rarely do pollsters ask the follow-up question, which is, uh, do you think any party or politician is really concerned and will address your top concerns? And when they do, when they do ask that question, the answer they get, like a recent poll showed, is that uh, CBC did this one. 80% of people feel that there's an elite in Canada and that the elite is uh, the ones that are taking care of themselves and not taking care of voters. And that uh, politicians get into power and then just lose interest in voters once they have that power and start protecting themselves and their friends and supporters. Well, there's plenty of evidence of that historically. Yes, and and, uh, what the parties don't seem to understand in terms of paying attention to this is that uh, actually swing voters pay a lot of attention to ethics, and so do a lot of other voters. And, you know, the latest polls show that only 10% of people trust politicians because they think they're looking out for themselves. And so uh, they really should pay attention much more to this. Uh, because swing voters are the ones that decide elections. And right. Not the, right. not the rabid partisans that vote for the same party always. It's the ones who swing back and forth. And the ones who swing back and forth are looking for no more politics as usual because they know they won't get what they want from politics as usual. They never have, and they believe they never will. So they look for the party really pledging to clean things up. Duff, you mentioned the rabid partisans, and I th- I think that's a really good uh, place to, st- to stop on this next little discussion you know, to me, ethics and parties, um, the, the, the two words don't go together well for me because to me, ethics has always been a matter of the way an individual, no matter what their party stripe is, the way an individual conducts themselves, um, whether, they're, whether they're within a party or not. And as you know, and as we've seen, you can have individuals that all carry the same party membership, uh, but don't act the same way. And that confuses things even more, don't you think? It does. And, uh, you know, if you ask people, what do you think of your local MP? A lot of people will say, yeah, that person's good. And I've engaged with them and maybe I've, uh, sought some help from them, they've helped me, but you ask them about politicians generally and about parties and the leadership, their views are very different. And they see that those who rise to the top are the ones that really are corrupted by power, is to the general view. So um, the parties uh, could do a lot more to help their own situation as well by pledging to give MPs more power and more say. But the leaders all want that power, and they're really, really pushing against any attempt to to for MPs to have more power. Even uh, a conservative MP, Michael Chong, pushed for a change called the Reform Act, and it really ended up as the Hope for Reform Act because the party leaders threatened MPs and said, if you vote for this, which really will free MPs to represent voters, then, you know, we do, we, parties leaders were threatening things like we won't allow you to be a candidate for our party in the next election. So what? So the, so the, I'm playing devil's advocate here. So what? So if I'm that MP, I say I'm going to vote my conscience and I'm going to be ethical. I'm going to vote it anyway. Screw you. I guess I, I guess I have to have the bravery to live with the, 
the consequences. And shouldn't we have people like that trying to affect change in government? People that we elect, shouldn't they be like that? We should. And amazingly, the parties didn't, uh, the MPs didn't all stand up, uh, not a majority of them anyway, and push back. And if they all had, what are the party leaders going to do? Fire a majority of MPs? Right. I mean, that would have looked very bad. But MPs rolled over and uh, and kept the same system we've had in place now for 40 years, where the party leaders really control them. They control the whole decision-making process and only let them to dissent on rare occasions and when it doesn't really threaten the power of the cabinet. And uh, it's very unfortunate that MPs didn't stand up. Michael Chong was trying to rally them, but a minority was in in favor of that, and party well, leaders were able to well, whip the majority. They, they, the get, they get corrupted as well by, by power at a, at a slightly lower level. They, and, 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 yeah, the uh, offering of perks of being put on committees by the leader. Exactly. Uh, how how about commit? How about indexed pensions? Like they, they're they're in it for a job. They want to stay elected because they want to get the big golden ticket at the end, and they right, like and the they, ha- they like the prestige. They have to stay there for six years to get that. So that means winning two elections, right? And uh, yeah, unfortunately, people didn't line up, and MPs could have thrown off their chains collectively, and they instead decided to roll over. And continue to be essentially lapdogs for the party leaders. Right, we got to run. Duff. We got to run, Duff. But where are the where are the brave ones <laughs> in waiting? Where are the ones that are willing, would be willing to to stand up? As the you you gave an example, but I mean out there, people that haven't been elected yet. Where's that movement? Is it coming? It's, do you think? It's a key question to ask candidates if they knock on your door or call you. Where do you stand on MPs being free to represent voters? as opposed to towing the party line that the party leader wants. It's a very key question because you, you won't get MPs voting, addressing voters' concerns if they're under the control of leaders. So people All right. should ask, and the ones that say that they'll stand up and that their party's platform has some measures to free MPs, that's where you want to vote because that system change is very much needed if we're ever going to get the government that we want and deserve. All right, Duff Conacher, uh, co-founder of Democracy Watch and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's an article on uh, HuffPost, and we're going to be talking to uh, a parenting expert in a moment about this uh, this thing about women feeling guilty about the way they handle their kids in terms of screen time, in terms of the their meal preparation and what they're eating and what they're doing and all of that kind of thing. I don't know where this insecurity comes from because I grew up in a generation of mothers who, um, you know, boy, did they kind of lay down the law and know what was going on. There was no hint whatsoever among our crew that our mothers – didn't know exactly what they were doing and exactly what they expected of us and exactly what was going to happen. It was confidence city. Now, maybe they were hiding some of that, you know, insecurities. I don't know. But there seems to be a bit of an epidemic of, of mom guilt going on. And joining me on the line to talk about it is Ann Douglas. She's a parenting expert and author of uh, the Mother of All Baby Books series. Uh, Ann, welcome back to the program. Oh, great talking to you as always. Thanks. Uh, you know, I often think that if, in fact, there is an epidemic, as I call it, and I like to over-dramatize things on the radio <laughs> because it makes for good ratings, um, but uh, 
if there is indeed an epidemic of mom guilt out there, can I overgeneralize as I normally do and say that it's all because of television and social media and mass media and all of that stuff and expectations that are put on women? First of all, is it real? Is oh, mom guilt real? It is definitely real. I mean, I, I just finished writing in the past year a book called Happy Parents, Happy Kids, and it's all about anxiety, guilt, and feelings of overwhelm. And I interviewed 50 Canadian parents, so mums um, as well as dads, and I can tell you that the guilt that people are putting on themselves right now is like nothing I've ever seen. And I've been a, a parent for 30 years, and I've been interviewing parents for roughly as long, and I think that things have just really ramped up. Why do you think that's happening, Anne? I think it's a couple of the things that you touched upon. I think that now that we have, you know, so much social media in our lives, we do this false comparison where we look at what other people are posting publicly and we compare that with our own inner thoughts. So most of us don't feel blissed out about parenting 24-7 and we have access to the contents of our brains and our thoughts so we're comparing that against somebody else's post about how they just had the most perfect weekend ever with their blissfully adorable children. And we tell ourselves, and parents tell themselves really harshly, I'm doing it all wrong, I'm a terrible parent, when it's really just a false comparison. So I think there's that part, and I think there's the fact that still, even in 2019, the job description for mother is a lot less forgiving and a lot harsher than the job description of dads. Women are socialized to believe that you can't just be an okay mother, you have to be a fantastic mother, and what that means is is just spiraling wilder and right. more out of control every year. And is that is that tied to what I perceive uh, to have to be a constant competition that goes on between women? I often say this, and I've had many women uh, in my life back this up and back this opinion up that women are extremely tough on on one another in just about every aspect of life and very judgmental uh, of one another. And and so this parenting thing is just part of that, that, uh, you know, you got to you got to be a great cook. You've got to have a great career. You got to have the right clothes, the right car, the right look. Your lips have to look a certain way. Your eyelashes have to be extended. You have to you know, you have to make sure your kids are in nine million uh, things uh, and scheduled to death and all of that kind of stuff in order for you to compete uh, with, you know, the mother next door or the woman down the street or your colleague. Is, th is it that competition thing that's that's driving this, do you think? I think there can be an element of competition, but I think a lot of mothers are realizing that we're going to exhaust ourselves if we stay in competition mode. And we're realizing that, you know, somebody across the street, they may look like they have the perfect life or that, you know, they've got their act together, but odds are they're struggling too. So the more we can emphasize what we have in common and turn to one another for support, the better and easier it is. That said, if you go to a lot of Facebook message boards uh, for mothers, you will see um, sort of a, I guess, a non-generosity of spirit where sometimes people forget to give the other person the benefit of the doubt or they assume that the solution that worked for them will work for somebody else. And they can be a little harsh and judgmental. But I think once you've been on the receiving end of those comments yourself a couple of times, you you learn to take a step back and to realize that, you know, maybe somebody else is really doing the best they can, or maybe they have an entirely different kid who isn't going to respond to the, the words of wisdom that you feel obligated to pass along in the moment. Right. And social media, again, it, it's, it's totally, it's almost completely fake. It is... 
it is people merchandising the things that in some cases they wish were the truth about their existence and about their families. And they get a reward by putting forward uh, images that people then respond to and and there's buy-in by people that don't really see behind the curtain and then they get this dopamine rush that they've been sort of um you know uh, accepted in in society and that they're okay by virtue of the fact that they put forward a few cutesy photos that they staged at some holiday that they were at but they don't tell you that they were all arguing two hours ago about what where they were going to have lunch or you know the kid was having a tantrum because he couldn't go in the canoe or whatever right well i know a couple of years ago i wrote a book about parenting children who are struggling with all kinds of different issues and one of the parents i interviewed for that book said nobody posts a selfie on the way to the principal's office and i often <laughs> think about that because wouldn't that change everything if people were a little more yeah. honest and, but i have to say in fairness to parents a lot of people are trying to sort of be a little more real and honest. And, you know, I appreciate that because otherwise you can feel totally defeated and discouraged by life, you know, by 8 a.m. on a Monday morning. Well, this is it. And and I was going to ask you, uh, as an expert and somebody that's been writing about parenting for as long as you have, in this particular discussion, in this case, we're talking about mom guilt. Is there a sweet spot of, of age uh, of mothers that suffer from this this type of thing because mothers come in all different ages is there a is there a zone of age where this where this happens uh, a lot I think it's more tied to motherhood stage and there's a lot of research that shows that when you have a very young baby or when you have a teenager mm. you can have a really really tough time as a mom in fact there were some researchers at Arizona State University who a couple of years back said that um, female friendships, friendships with other mothers are just as critical for moms of preteens and teens as they are for brand new moms because you need the encouragement and support of other people who've been through this hard stuff if only to validate that yes, everybody finds this hard and no, it's not that you're doing it wrong and, and to say, you know, I may be a couple years further down this journey than you are and let me throw you like a life preserver to tell you you will get through these stormy times ahead. But it's also psychologically and physiologically Logically, fact-based. What you just what you just said. These these having the support of of other friends uh, at certain stages of the child's development, because that's what we're talking about. When when kids are you know uh, we'll say three years old, um, their brains are developing as uh, you know rapidly, and that and then it, it, things kind of go along calmly for a while, and then they get to the teen part and the brain's rapidly developing again. I mean, there's actual scientific fact uh, stuff to, to back that up. People like Dr. Gene Clinton has yes. done done world-renowned research on on that type of thing. So what you're saying makes it makes perfect sense that, you know, we have to we have to support one another um, as we go along. Uh, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. There's a lot of truth in that. Right. And it also takes a village to support that child's parent. And I think sometimes that's where we drop the ball because we are getting really isolated in our own homes. I mean, think of how often people drive into their garage, put down the garage door or go into an underground parking garage and they never actually talk to their neighbors. It's only when you have those 
that network of relationships around you where you can see, yeah, that dad is having a bad day or that mom is really struggling. It's not just me. And then you feel like you can open up to other people. And, and I think if we could lose that sense of shame and self-judgment and treat ourselves and other people with a bit more compassion, parenting would be so much easier. Why are we so afraid? Why are we so afraid of that? I think because we're worried about being judged. And I mean, some people are harsh and unkind when you say that you're going through times of struggle. Um, But I think the majority of people are really compassionate once you can get beyond sort of, you know, having, I guess, the wrong circle of friends. I know that the week that my book was published um, about parenting through the storm, which was all about parenting through times of struggle, I got so many messages from people behind the scenes saying, yeah, our family was dealing with that too. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, it would have been so great to know that in the moment because then all of us wouldn't have felt quite so alone, right? Yeah, and I think uh, to that, again, to that point, uh, you know, if we're having... If we're having real interactions with real human beings, our, our, our neighbors and, and, and people in, in our community and having that real human to human conversation and contact o- o- over coffee, even if it's in, in your kitchen while the kids are uh, playing or doing whatever, like like used to happen in other generations, then, then that's a, you know, that's a better thing than uh, d- doing it online or or, you know, watching reality shows on tv that portray uh, families and uh even the, i think even look at this the the preponderance of of home shows and cooking shows that are on tv that do nothing but put pressure on people to make the perfect cake for and the perfect meal and the house has to be perfectly decorated according to the latest uh, decorator uh, trends and and all of that stuff it's just pressure 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 and people are absorbing all of this through their screens when really as you say We should be sitting down and having conversations with one another. Yes, and if you can maybe find some of the parents in your neighborhood online just via a group that you, you know, maybe you stumble across them that way. And, but then look for opportunities to take those relationships over into the real world. Maybe organize a meetup at a local park or something, just because you're right. There's nothing like looking into the eyeballs of another human being and reading their body language and knowing that they didn't mean what they said in a snarky way. It was actually meant to be a joke, and you know, it just makes it a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. Ann Douglas, a parenting expert and author of the uh, Mother of All Baby Books series, Always great to chat with you. Uh, thanks very much for this today. Thanks, Jamie. Bye for now. Bye-bye. And uh, let's open the lines at 905-645-3221, star 9900. You know, uh, maybe you're somebody who's a bit older. Maybe your daughter is a, a mother, a new mother. You're a grandmother. Um, you view the way your daughter parents compared to how you parented. Um, this is, you know, we're talking about guilty mothers. Dads are free to chime in too here. Absolutely. But 905-645-3221 star 9900. Do you think that, uh, mothers today have some reason to feel guilty about the way they parent? Or do you think that it's all a fallacy created by, um, watching too much reality TV and too much screen time? 905-645-3221. Or star nine nine hundred, the telephone number's the call. I think that um, I think that parenting, in general, has become more and more difficult. But I don't think it's because parenting itself is any more difficult than it's ever been. I think that people have made it more difficult. 
I think that people have put really unrealistic expectations on themselves um, as as parents. I, my belief is be be consistent and set consistent boundaries for for kids, and that will make them feel safe. And they're not always going to like the boundaries that you set. It's not about whether they like it or not, and it's not about you know giving in to every single wish and whim that a child has. It's not about that. You know, if 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 that were the case, what, what kind of generation would we raise? We have a responsibility as parents to set boundaries and rules, but you got to be consistent, right? And you got to follow through. And um, hey, your kids aren't going to hate you forever for you know telling them no this time or the next time. You know that's that's the thing, and you don't need to feel guilty about saying no. To your kid. You're the parent. You're not their playmate. You're not their buddy. You're their parent. You have a job to do. You got to raise them up. You got to teach them about what life is is really like at age appropriate levels as you go along. That's what you signed on for. The child didn't ask to be born. <laughs> you know, you brought the child into the world. But but we put way, way, way too much pressure on ourselves. To keep up, it used to be keeping up with the Joneses was about having a nice car in the driveway like, you know, Mr. Jones had or a TV that was nice. Now, that, now everybody's got, you know, all of those those things. Well, not everybody does, but a lot of people do. But now it's more about how am I perceived as a mother? How am I perceived as a father in today's uh, society? And it's all about the look and goodism. And it's far less about the actual job of parenting, which is tough, admittedly. Parenting's, <laughs> it's always been a tough job. But I think my understanding is that it comes with a lot of rewards later on because there will come a time when that child will likely come back to you and say, am I ever glad you were tough with me at this point in time in my life? Because if you hadn't done it, if you hadn't been tough, I might not have stuck with the thing that you knew I was good at, for example, or I had talent in, or I, you know, but I just didn't have the confidence to, to follow through on. You pushed me through that, you know, and now I'm a rocket scientist at NASA, or now I'm a brain surgeon or whatever, or I found a cure for, for cancer. Like that's what's at stake here, you know, not whether or not the birthday cake was perfectly iced. Not whether or not the kid had the very latest, greatest iPhone model. It's got nothing to do with it. And you mothers, you women have got to stop beating each other up. Knock it off. Stop competing with one another. There's no need for it. It doesn't serve anybody. It clearly doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve your kids. And the same thing can be said for, for dads. Just... Just cool it. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.